الحمد لله الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلوات ربه وسلامه عليه وعلى اله واصحابه ومن دعا بدعوته الى يوم الدين اما بعد beloved brothers and sisters in islam assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about tawbah in the holy quran and i've spoken about the subject many many times but today we're going to look at how the sahaba dealt with sin and how the sahaba dealt with tawbah and all the sahaba dealt with istighfar after all the best teacher that we have is muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam and obviously coming after that we were the students of muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam if i had to give you a choice between me teaching you and a student of the nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam teaching you your choice would be quite obvious that we put the sahaba after muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam you don't seem to agree with me but that's not my problem so allah speaks about tawbah in the quran allah says illa man taba wa amana wa amila amalan salihan faulaika yubaddilullahu sayyiatihim hasanat and allah says wa ma yaghfiru dhunuba illa allah allah says in the first verse illa man taba for those who commit sin illa man taba for those who make tawbah وآمن ان بليف وعمل عملا صالحا ان دو جود ديدز يبدل الله سيئاتهم حسنات الله سبحانه تشينجز ذا باد ديدز انتو جود ديدز سبحان الله سو مان وانس كيم تو ذا نبي صلى الله عليه وسلم اند ان ذا نيتشر اوف ذا نيريشن هيز نيم از نوت مينشند هيز نيم از نوت مينشند هي كيم تو ذا نبي سام سيد يا رسول الله اي هاف كوميتد ايفري كايند اوف سن ذات يو كان ايماجين I've committed every kind and every type of sin there's not a sin that I haven't committed What do I do Is the tawbah for me How do I get forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala So the Nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam said to him are you a muslim He said yes I'm a muslim I declare that there is no ilah except Allah and you are the messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa anna muhammadar rasulullah because when these things happened always there were a lot of sahaba around the nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam so all the sahaba was watching this conversation between this man and the nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam so the nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam said to him do you do good deeds are there good things that you do he said ya rasulullah yes i do good who is good that i do i do a lot of good but i've committed all these sins so the nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam says Well with your good deeds Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala change your bad deeds into good deeds. Subhanallah. Nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam didn't ask him what did you do? No no no. He said I've committed you, you you can use your own imagination. You can contemporize it to today. Of course maybe he didn't take drugs because there were no drugs at the time so that's out of the question. But maybe he did some a lot of other things which people do all the time from Nabi Adam's time until now until the day of akhirah. So he said ya Rasulullah What about my khadarat and my fujarat? What about my ghadarat and my fujarat? He said, Ya Rasulullah, what about all the times that I betrayed Allah? 
in the sins that I have done. Betrayed my, my commitment to Allah, my contract with Allah. Betrayed my kalima that I recite every night when I go and sleep and all the time. And what about my fujarat? What about all the bad and evil things that I have done? Would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala turn all that into good deeds? Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa said, Allah will turn all that into good deeds. Subhanallah. And the man turned around and the sahaba reports and they say, he made takbir until they didn't see him anymore. From the time he left, the Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa shouting takbir, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, until he was far away shouting in the distance, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. And it was like Eid for him. This was his Eid. His Eid was that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's mercy was greater than his punishment. And this was the attitude of the Sahaba alayhi salatu salam, la taqnatu bi rahmatullah. Do not give up hope for the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, how do we distinguish the sins of the Sahaba to our sins? They committed the same sins. But what is the difference between their sins and after all, sin is a sin. Drinking water is drinking water, whether you're a Sahabi or not a Sahabi, it doesn't matter. Allah SWT treats everybody the same. But what is the difference between them and us? There must be a difference in them, between them and us because Allah SWT says, Radiallahu anhum wa radu'an. Radiallahu Allah is pleased with them. Wa radu'an. And they are pleased with Allah SWT. So there must be a difference. What is the difference? They were human beings like you and me, yet all of them will go to paradise, inshallah. The difference between the Sahaba and us, and they are human beings, so the difference is, we can eliminate the differences, because they are not malaika, they are human beings like us. First of all, the Sahaba never justified the things that they did wrong. The sins that they had committed. The Sahaba never defended the sins that they, had, that they had committed. The Sahaba immediately confessed that what I did was wrong, it was wrong, and that's it. Not that, oh, we live in a non-Muslim country, you know, so riba is fine. Oh, we live in a non-Muslim country, so that is okay. No. Sahaba also lived in non-Muslim countries. Sahaba lived in Mecca, which was a non-Muslim country. The Sahaba came to Medina, which was also a non-Muslim country. There were 10,000 Jews and, and, and Mushrikun in Mecca when the Prophet came there. The Muslims were only 500. 500 out of 10,000 was in a Muslim country. No, it wasn't a Muslim country. It was a non-Muslim country. Was Mecca a Muslim country? No, Mecca wasn't a Muslim country. Mecca was filled with... I mean, the, the Nabi Sallallahu was was less than 150 Muslims in Makkah of the thousands of the people who worship the idols. The women walked around the Kaaba naked. Did they say, oh, we live in a non-Muslim country, we can look, it's fine. You know, what do you can't, what do you do? You know, you live in the non-Muslim country. No, they lowered their gaze, didn't say, well, we live in a non-Muslim country. So they didn't make excuses. They said it was wrong and it was wrong and that was it. And we make tawbah and I admit it was wrong. They didn't justify, they didn't intellectualize it. As we say. And rationalize it. Trying to find something, you know, 
Like today, you know, with children, for example, we always justify a child when he's naughty. Isn't it? If the child is two years old, we say, hey, my two year old. If the child is four years old, we say, hey, my three year old. If the child is ten years old, it's my ten year old. If the child is fifteen years old, it's my fifteen year old. If the child is twenty one, it's my young girl. If the child is forty years old, we say, vacant. Never mind. We always try and justify. That is the difference between us and the Sahaba Alaihissalam. You know, and the Sahaba Alaihissalam wasn't afraid to say that this is what they did and that is what they did. I want to give you some examples today, which I want you to remember and take home with you and remember it next time you commit a sin, because you're going to commit more sins like me. كل ابن آدم خطاون وخير الخطاون توابون. Nabi Sallallahu said, every human being commits sin. Except Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the Nabi Ambiya And the best sinner is he who immediately says, I'm wrong. I'm a tawbah. For example, I said last week people say, oh, you can use riba to pay tax. And they will rationalize it, intellectualize it. They will make it look nice, they will make it sound, but this is a non Muslim country. What do we do? La hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. Ulama, I'm not talking about people like that. Ulama will say this. Allah says it's haram, we rationalize it. That's why we are, we are that's why we're not Sahaba. That's why we're hanging in the balance. Sahaba said haram, haram, haram. When they became Muslim in Makkah, Allah revealed the verses of riba, they said to everybody, no, keep all the riba, just give my capital back, khalas, in the story. Why? Because Allah said so. Just my capital, that's all I want. From, from, from a second before the revelation to a second after the revelation, they, halas, no more riba. End of, just like that, subhanAllah. There was a man by the name of Sahabi, by the name of Abu Lubaba. Abu Lubaba, L-U-B-A. B.A. Abu Lubaba. Radiallahu ta'ala. And just shortly, to give you a background to the story that I'm going to tell you. It's not one of those good stories Zuma tells, this is a true story. We know the battle of the trench, or the battle of the khandaq. The Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had made a pact with the Jews of Medina. That the Quraysh has assembled an army of 10,000 men to finally come and destroy Medina. Would they sign a treaty with the Nabi Sallallahu that they would defend the rear of Medina and the Nabi Sallallahu would dig a trench in the front of Medina and put his 4,000 men to defend the trench and defend Medina in the front. And they agreed. Sign the treaty, we agreed. You know, we're part of the citizens of Medina. Of Medina. We also want Medina to be protected and uh, we agree that we will put our men at the back of Medina and we will defend the rear of Medina. When the, when the Quraysh came, the Jews let in from the warriors of Quraysh from the rear. In other words, they broke the treaty. They betrayed the treaty which they signed with the Nabi Sallallahu They allowed them to attack the women and the children that Nabi Sallallahu put at the rear to take them out of danger. 
So when the battle was over, the Jews retreated into a fortress made of stone, big fortress with massive gates. But all the Jews went in there. Manu Qurayda, particularly the Manu Qurayda. And the Nabi Sallallahu laid siege to this fortress. For 25 days he laid siege to the fortress. And of course after 25 days what happened was they ran out of food and water. The Jews ran out of food and water. And when they ran out of food and water they sent a message to the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam saying Muhammad we would like to negotiate with you. Send somebody to negotiate with us. We would like you to send Abu Lubaba. Why Abu Lubaba? Abu Lubaba is a Muslim, a Sahabi. Because Abu Lubaba was a former Jew and he was a former ally of the Jews. Because he was a Jew. So Nabi Sassan said to Abu Lubaba, go and negotiate with them. Go and negotiate with them their surrender. All I want you to tell them is that they should open the gates of the castle, I don't want to attack the castle, and they should all leave the castle. That's the first thing. All you need to do is go in there and negotiate how they're going to leave the castle in which they are. So Abu Lubaba goes in, the Jews are very clever people, subhanAllah. When, he, when, he, when they opened the gates, what confronted him? Oh, they put all the women and children in front of him. Mothers with babies, small children, all of them were crying and sobbing and saying, we got no food, we got no water. What is Muhammad Muhammad going to do with us, alayhi salatu salam? You know, please tell him, must give us food and water, etc., 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 etc. So Abu Lubaba was sort of taken aback by this. There's no men coming to negotiate with all the women and all the children standing there. The men are standing at the back. So Abu Lubaba says to them, I must tell you that you must all leave this fortress. Or else. What did he do? What or else? He said you must all leave this fortress or else. That's what he did. Exactly as I'm doing. That's what he did. He pulled his hand across his neck. Like we do today. We do that. So he did this. In other words, if you're not going to leave out of your own free will, that is going to happen to you. You're going to be put to death. So he left. But as he stepped out of the doors of the fortress, he realized that he had done something wrong. He had betrayed a state secret. The Nabi Sallallahu didn't tell him to tell him to tell them that he was going to put them to death. All he had to do was to tell them to negotiate with them in what manner and how they were going to leave the fortress. And he said, Subhanallah, I've betrayed the Nabi Sallallahu I've done something terrible. I was only supposed to tell them to leave. This gesture of mine that I did this was not part of the, what the Nabi Sallallahu had, was not part of the mandate. Subhanallah, it wasn't part of the mandate. Immediately he realized he did something terribly wrong. Yet he could have hidden it because there were no witnesses to, to what he did. There was nobody with him. Nobody, nobody, if there was a recorder there, nobody could have recorded this because no words were sent. He only did the action. What did he do? He went straight to the masjid. 
Masjid al-Nabawi. The masjid that we go now when we go for hajj at masjid. He went to the masjid and he tied himself to an istiwana next to the member of the Nabi Sallallahu Istiwana is a pillar. The pillar is still there. Called istiwana to tawbah. It's called the pillar of tawbah or the pillar of lubah. But still there. 1500 years later, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had given that that pillar will stand inshallah until the day of qiyamah. As a reminder to us of the, of the actions of the sahabi. So he, what he, go, he goes and he ties himself to the pillar. Now the Sahaba asked him, Lubaba, what, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And he said what he did. And he said, I will not leave this pillar until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals a verse in the Quran that he has accepted my tawbah. So he ties himself up at the pillar, he loosens himself only when time comes for salah. And when he wants to go to the bathroom and go home to eat, otherwise he would tie himself to the pillar. And when the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi saw this, Nabi Sallallahu asked him, but Lubaba, why, why, why are you doing this? He said, this is what I did, this was a sin I committed. The Nabi said, oh, oh Lubaba, you didn't do it intentionally, why didn't you come to me? If you had come to me, I would have forgiven you. Told you did it against the protocol that the mandate which I had given you. But now, it's between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And for six days, he tied himself to the, to the istiwana, to the, to the pillar. So he was like, it was like self-imprisonment. For six days, he fasted also. Didn't eat. Bring him closer to Allah. He cried every day, he cried. He cried every day, 24 hours a day, crying, asking Allah to, to forgive him. For six days, six whole days. On the sixth day, Umm Salma, Umm Salma, as you know, was one of the wives of the Nabi, Ali Maybe you, maybe you don't know this, but most of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ lived around the masjid. When I say around the masjid, I don't mean in, in uh, one side in Lower Lanzano and one side in Krumbuamra, not like that. They stayed next to the masjid. So here was the masjid, here was Aisha's little room, next door was Umm Salma. On this side was Fatima. On that side was Safiya. So all around the wall of the masjid, outer wall of the masjid, the, the, the wife stayed. So Umm Salma, staying right next to Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. Subhanallah, look at, the, look at the love these women had for this man Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. What a man he was, eh? He was a real man. Today one wife stays in Joburg and the one stays in Cape Town, there's big trouble. Still big trouble. Because every time the man goes for business in Joburg, there's big trouble. Because his wife knows he's not going for business. Yeah, the wives are staying right next to the house of the Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So, one night she heard the Nabi laughing. Nabi was laughing, Nabi was laughing. And she went and said, Ya Rasulullah, why, why are you laughing? He said, Allah just revealed the verse of the Quran forgiving Abu Lubaba for what he did. So she was unhappy. The verse, of course, is verse 102 of Surah Tawbah, which is the ninth surah of the Holy Quran. Allah says, وَآخَرُونَ اَعْتَرَفُوا بِذُنُوبِهِمْ And there are, there are those, says Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who has acknowledged the sin which they have committed. Acknowledged. Acknowledged. I've committed sin, I've acknowledged this, what I did. خَالَتُوا عَمَلًا صَالِحًا وَآخِرْ سَيِّئًا وَآخِرْ سَيِّئًا 
mixing up the good with the bad. So, first part of the message was good, the second part was a betrayal of the mandate which Nabi Sallallahu gave him. Asa Allahu ayyatuba alayhim, inna Allah ghafuran, ghafurur rahim. Verily Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive him. Forgive them. Very Allah is most forgiving, most merciful. So when she heard this from the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, she said, Ya Rasulullah, let me give him the message. I would love to give him this good news. So she went into the masjid and she said, Oh, Abu Lubaba, did you hear the Nabi laughing? He said, Did you hear the Nabi laughing? She said, Jibiril just came with the glad tidings that Allah has forgiven you for the discretion, I would say indiscretion, that you had committed. So she said, Shall I help you untie you? He said, No, 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 no. The only person to untie me would be Muhammad. The only person to untie me would be Muhammad. And of course, this was in the middle of the night. He had to wait till the next morning, Fajr, for the Nabi to come for Fajr Salah and the Nabi untied him. Now, can you imagine what, what did he do? He wasn't interested in in what was the people going to say. Yeah, he was publicly chastising himself for what he did. It was not important what people think of you. If you want to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Sahaba showed this. He acknowledged. He acknowledged that the act that he, that he did was mixed with also an act which he shouldn't have done. And... The amazing part of this is that you know what we do today. We, today we have a problem, we have committed and where do we go? We go to some of us, not all of us. We go to our sheikh or we go to our peer who's already dead. We go to a dead person and we say to him, you know, I did this. Sayyidi, you know, I did this. Sayyidi, you know, I've got, I've got cancer. Sayyidi, you know, you must kill me. Oh, my mother's got cancer. You know, my wife doesn't love me anymore, you know. Will you please, you know, talk to Allah, you know, to give me love. What did Abu Lubaba do? In the presence of the living, most honored, most honorable, most beloved Prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not just the Sayyid, not just the Shaykh, not just the Peer. He was Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa He bypassed the Nabi sallallahu alayhi Nabi said, but why didn't you come to me? You genuinely admitted you made a mistake out of ask Allah to forgive you and you would have been forgiven. Why? Because the Sahaba knew who ultimately has to forgive the sin? Not Muhammad sallallahu Muhammad said to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He says, well, I, will, I, will, I, will, I will tie myself directly to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I will do it publicly. I will do it publicly and I don't care what people say. This is me. This is what I do. And this is why all these groups with their sheikhs and their peers who ultimately become little gods of themselves has brought us to where we are today. A divided faith into millions of little groups. So much so that even those who do good amongst us sometimes fall prey to our own sense of value that we attribute to ourselves and think we can play God. And I've said this before and I, I, 
I'm upset about something which, which I saw in, and I, and I want to repeat it to you today, those of you who are not here. I think it's important that we become conscious of what happens around us when we compare to the lives of the Sahaba. That there was an article in the news, uh, what's it called? Not Newsweek, the other one, Newsweek. Newsweek. An article where they interviewed the leader of the gift of the givers. It's public knowledge, it's not something which I say. And it's a long article, quite a number of pages, maybe 10 pages, of his whole life story and how he met his, his peer in, in Turkey and how his peer inspired him to do this work and how he's, you know, he hasn't got time for, uh, you know, all the ministers in the government want to speak to him and all the prime ministers and presidents in the world want to speak to him, you know, to resolve the problems in Syria and Lebanon and Syria, Marshall is doing a lot of good work and he feeds a lot of people. And he says, many a morning he's so busy on his cell phone he can't make salah. Then time for salah. No time. No time for salah. But what does he say now after that? That is, you can say that. But he says that in the print, in print, you can, the news, Newsweek is, on, you, you can buy it now, maybe you can, maybe uh, they, they'll have more copies for, you know, for sale this time because I'm advertising. Then he says, and I, I almost don't want to repeat it, but I have to tell you this because this is human failing. This is when you, re, when you think that you've done so much. What does he say? He says, And he's speaking to Allah. He says, you created this mess and I must clear it up. You still want me to make salah? It's important. Or less in the same words. He says, you created this mess. I have to come and clean up your mess. When I miss your salah, you must just overlook it. And he refers to Allah as the guy. The guy, the G-U-I. Guy. By the way, you'll read it. The guy. The guy might just be happy that I don't make salah when I don't have time. Because all this killing and this disasters and stuff, he created this. La hawla wa la quwwata illa billahi So that is when there's no iman. And we want to play God. And this is the sahaba of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa This is their life. Usama bin Zaid. Usama bin Zaid, you know Usama bin Zaid was the son of Zaid ibn Haritha. When Umar ibn Khattab one day was distributing sadaqah to the Sahaba, his own son Abdullah ibn Umar was there and Usama ibn Zaid was in the queue. And he gave to Usama bin Zaid double the sadaqah that he gave to his own son Abdullah. So Abdullah said, Dad, I was closer to the Nabi Sallallahu than him. You know. why, why, you, why are you favoring him, Usama? I mean, why, why are you giving him double the what you give me? He said, he, Prophet loved him more than he loved you. I know. Prophet loved him more, and the Prophet loved his father more than he loved me. Subhanallah. And both of them were black, pitch black. Usama was pitch black, and his father Zaid was pitch black. But his, Zaid preferred Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi over his own father. He said, I don't want to go with my own father, I'll stay with the Nabi, become the slave, the servant of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi 
When the Nabi entered Makkah at the, at the conquest of Makkah, who was behind him? At the head of more than 100,000 men, behind him was Usama and Bilal, two black men from Africa, leading the march for the greatest victory that Islam ever had. Usama bin Zaid was the one whom the Nabi Sallallahu appointed just before his death to lead in one of the biggest armies against the Romans. In that army was Abu Bakr and Omar. He was the leader, he was 20 years old. There was a lot of murmuring going on. Nabi Sallallahu appointed him. And when the Nabi Sallallahu died, before he could, the army could leave, Nabi Sallallahu said, if anything happens to me, this army must leave. And Usama must be the commander. Subhanallah. So this was the status of Usama bin Thabit in the eyes of the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And the Nabi was a man who didn't discriminate against anybody. Here yeah, was the true test of None is better than another, illa bit, illa bit taqwa. Illa bit taqwa. So Usama bin Zayd tells the story, he says, his first expedition in which he had taken part, in which he was the commander of the expedition, was a small ex- expedition that went to fight some of the, some of the idol worshippers. And Usama says, that he was watching as commander of the army. He was young, but he was a very intelligent man. That's why the prophet appointed him. He said he was watching the battle. And he noticed on the enemy side, there was one particular man who he saw was targeting all the great sahaba, all the great fighters. He would target them, and then he would go for them, and he would kill them. So Usama thought to himself, if I can get hold of that one man, if I can kill that one mushrik, the battle will turn in the favor of the Muslims. He was, he was reading the, the battlefield. So he said to one of his companions, he said, go with me, come. Man said, where are you going? He said, we're, gonna, we're going to go for that man. We're going to take him out. So this man was, what the drones are doing today, was doing target killing. You know? So Usama went with his companion, others Habi, and they went after him. And they ran after him. And he, and he saw that they were chasing him, and he was running away from them. And they were running. And every time Usama looked at him and saw the blood of the Muslim dripping from his armor, he became very energized. And, you know, his adrenaline was pumping. Eventually, he caught up with this man. And he took out his dagger, and he got the man on the ground. And he lifted his dagger. And the man looked at him and smiled and said, Ashadu Allah ilaha illallah. Wa ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. So the other Sahabi was with him, he backed off. He backed off. He walked away. And Usama was there, seeing the blood of all the Muslims and even pieces of flesh on this man's armor. And he killed him. Usama made a split second decision to say to himself, This guy is just saving, you know, he's just saving his skin. I mean, really now. I mean, mate, how can you do this, you know? Just when you, you know, a coward, I mean, now that you know you're going to die, you want to read the kalima thinking I'm going to save you. And he killed the man. So the other Sahabi, when they got back to Medina, the other Sahabi went. Some say that Usama himself went to the Nabi Sallallahu and Nabi Sallallahu asked him, Yeah, Usama, how did the battle go? What happened? So Usama 
told the story to the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and then he came to tell the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam about this man. Because the Nabi heard what happened. Nabi said to him, Usama, did you kill, what happened? He said, Ya Rasulullah, I killed this man. Nabi said, did he say the kalima? Did he say, Ashadu Allah ilaha illallah? He said, yes, he said, Ashadu Allah ilaha illallah. He said, wa anna Muhammad Rasulullah. And he looked at the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he said, Ya Rasulullah, istaghfir li. Ask Allah to forgive me. And the Nabi's face turned red. And the Nabi said to him, وَمَاذَا تَسْتَعُ بِلَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ Nabi asked him, what are you going to do on the day of Qiyamah with La ilaha illallah? Where do we put the La ilaha illallah? You say, I must ask Allah to forgive you, but what do we do with the fact that the man said La ilaha illallah? He looked at the Prophet and again he said, استغفر لي يا رسول الله. Please, Ask Allah to forgive me. Again the Nabi said, وَمَاذَا نَسْنَعَ وَمَاذَا تَسْنَعَ وَمَاذَا تَفْعَلَ بِلَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ What are we going to do with La ilaha illallah? I can't just put La ilaha illallah on one side and say Allah must forgive. Third time, three times he asked the Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And three times the Nabi gave him the same answer. What about the La ilaha illallah that the man said? So, and he kept kept quiet. Isn't it strange? Because what I would have done is, what do you think I would have done? I would have said, you know, there was this, I was watching him, Ya Rasulullah. He was killing all the great Sahaba. He was targeting all the great people on, in my army. And he, was, he killed so many and I ran after him and he saw us coming and he ran away from us. He knew what he was doing was wrong and we got hold of him. And I think when I got over him, he said, he said, he said his own kalima only to save him. That's what I would have said. That's what you would have said. What do we always do? We justify. Why are you late? My auntie died, my uncle. Why are you only yesterday? Well, oh, this happened, that happened. What? He said zero. He didn't justify, no justify. He knew, he, he knew that what he did was wrong. After all, if three times the Nabi refused to make his death, he knew, it wasn't like... You know? Today we trivialize the sins we commit. We will smoke. Why you smoke? Ah, it's cool, man. You know, it's, it's cool to smoke. Why do you take drugs? You know, you don't know. You know, I had a very terrible upbringing. You know, I was abused as a child. You know, my parents were divorced. You know, I grew up by my granny, you know, in Bonteville, you know, in a shack. So, you know, don't talk to me about, you know. And also the drugs, you know, puts me in another sort of world, you know, that I. You know, nobody can give me that kind of... We, we justify, you know, justify. Everything is justified. All our sins are justified. Why, why do you do that? No, because, you know, I'm, no, I don't listen to what he says. I listen to what he says, you know. Always we justify what we do. Osama said nothing. And there was silence. Eventually, Osama said, what did he say? He said, Ya Rasulullah, I'm only 16 years old. That is what he brought in front of the judge. Only all he could say. He was talking about his own weaknesses. He wasn't saying about his strengths and what he said, Rasul, I'm only sixteen. Please, man, I'm only I'm only a kid, you know. Like today we would say, he's only a teen, you know. He's only a kid. You know? He he tried to bring the same. But of course, 
He made so toba that he that he he said he will never go to battle against Muslims. Osama. And when the trouble started between Muawiyah and Sayyidina Ali, he locked himself up in the house until all the battles were finished. Sahaba came to break down his door to say, we have to support Sayyidina Ali. He said, who's on the other side? Muawiyah, he says, la ilaha illallah, I'm not interested. Not killing Muslims. Not killing anybody, he says, la ilaha illallah. Why? Because the Nabi Sallallahu said, the person who says, la ilaha illallah, before he dies, what about him? He'll go to Jannah. How can you kill a Muslim? So this was the Sahaba, alayhim, as-salatu wassalam. And this is how, that is why it is better to admit to what we do, to admit to the faults that we do. And to ask directly from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Man cannot forgive you. No man can forgive you. Lubaba is an example of that. He bypassed the living prophet, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa And he tied himself to a pillar of the masjid and he wanted Allah to forgive him. Because he knew Allah says, وَمَا يَخْفِرُ ذُنُوبَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ And who will forgive your sins except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is the path to paradise. And again as I said, Sahaba didn't justify. They didn't say, well, we live in a non-Muslim country so we can do this, that, and that. We say that every day. You hear people say, Kristalant. The Chris Kufar Lant. From where does that come from? Kufar. Allah created Kufar Lant. Allah created Kufr and Islam. And wherever there's Islam, there is Islam. If it has to live side by side with Kufr, that's something else. But the laws of Islam is applicable no matter where you are. There is no such thing as non-Muslim countries an excuse for itself, X, Y, and Z. No. Sahaba never made that excuse. Neither in Makkah that was a Christian, that was a non-Muslim country, that was a pagan state, nor was Medina an excuse, another pagan state, consisting of 10,000 Jews and pagans and 500 Muslims. When Nabi Sallallahu entered Medina. So, we learn then that the the way forward and it's very important this is a very important subject I'm talking about today we should not trivialize the good that we do do not think that the good that we do is not recognized by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never think that what you do which is good because people don't see it you get tired of doing it because nobody pats you on the back and says mashallah well, nobody knows what I'm doing, so I'm going to say, no. Similarly, don't trivialize the sins that we do. We should not trivialize and intellectualize and rationalize the sins that we do and say, well, I'm doing this because my wife does that to me and my children does that to me and my community does that to me and therefore I do it. Say that I've done it. And don't lose your trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And don't move away from your focus, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is the way to heal yourself. The way to healing the inside. Because who is free of sin? I mean, I quoted in the beginning of the Sahabi who came and said, 
that he committed every act of, of, of sin. Every single, he said to Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, I've committed every single kind of sin that you can think of. The Sahaba was sitting and listening to him. And the Prophet said to him, do you commit, do you do good? He said, yes, I do good. Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said then, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, do more good, just do good. Allah will change your evil into good. But it's a mindset. You have to decide that you're going to do that. You can't do it and then again revert back to where you were yesterday. You have to move forward. You have to leave the baggage behind. You have to leave. You see, this is what I always say. We are here to do a job in this dunya. We are here to serve Allah. Isn't it? We are here to make tawbah. We are here to live a good life. We are here to spread the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then there are things which Allah does, which you can't do. Even if you want to try and do it, you can't do it. You can't make anybody Muslim. Number one. So, why are we afraid to make da'wah? Only Allah knows. And I think the reason that we are afraid to make da'wah, particularly to non-Muslims, yes, we can make da'wah to Muslims very easily. Brother, you mustn't do that. Brother, you must come to the masjid. Brother, you must make salah. Brother, you must give sadaqah. Brother, you must wear a topi. Brother, you must... Wear your beard, brother, you must do this, brother. But if you send him over the road, to Agnes over the road, or to Mary, he says, or to Michael or Richard, suddenly he's, he's, he's voiceless, tongueless. He's got, since he's now paralyzed, he can't do anything. Why? Because he thinks he's got this great task of making Michael, Mikael, or whatever, or Muhammad. That's not your job. Allah didn't put that on you. That's not for you to do. All you have to do is to tell him there's one God, Muhammad is his messenger, khalas. And you turn around and you leave him. The rest is Allah's work. Can't do Allah's work. Don't be like the man of the gift of the givers who thinks he can do, he's doing Allah's work. I'm doing Allah's work. Allah's sitting up in heaven, they're doing nothing, creating all the chaos down here, and now he must do the work. La hawla wa la quwwata illa billahi la May Allah forgive him. And guide him as a good man, by the way, otherwise. I'm not condemning the man, I'm condemning what he said. And he said it in public, in writing, in script. So we have to be careful. So healing comes from at putting who you are and what you are and what you do at the door of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Of course, we'll always need psychologists, I mean, you know. I'm not saying, you know, you know, don't go to your psychologist for your normal sessions. You should still do that. It's very important. And why is it important? Because the people that went to the Nabi, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he was their psychologist and their psychiatrist and whatever. They went with their problems. And they discussed their problems with him. When they opened with them, they told him everything that they could tell him. No matter how big it was, no matter how small it was. And he always had a good answer for them. Always had a good answer. He always had the right answer. And he always had the answer that never hurt them. He always had the answer that uplifted them. Uplifted them. Subhanallah. I was reading a hadith on Wednesday evening. And the classes, of course, have started again on a Wednesday evening. After Ishai, for those of you who, uh, who are interested. And I was talking about, uh, I was talking about those things which, uh, which, 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 which adds to the hasanat of the deceased. What are those things that we do on the dunya 
that Allah still writes down for, for, for a deceased person. Because we know that Nabi Sallallahu said, when you die, all your good deeds stop. But there are things that we do that still accrues to your mom and your dad, particularly and your children, whoever has passed away, the things that you do that accrue to, their, to them. And it could be the difference to them going to Jannah or not going to Jannah. What you do in this dunya. And one of the hadith that I quoted was that whatever children do, whatever children do, everything that you do as a child, as a son, as a daughter, accrues to the balance of your parents in the akhirah. So for example, you're sitting here in the masjid for Jum'ah. While you're sitting here, all the rewards that you're getting automatically goes to your mother and your father in the akhirah. Without you making any intention. Every salah you make, that salah is in, all the reward goes to your parents. You give sadaqah, goes to your parents. Everything you do, every single thing you do that is good accrues to your parents without intention. Why? Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi quoted the verse of the Quran where Allah says, وَأَلَّيْسَ لِلْإِنسَانِ إِلَّا مَا سَعَى Because we know that you, you know, if you haven't done it in the dunya, you're not going to get it in the akhirah. Somebody can't make salah for you after you're dead. People sometimes put in their will, I missed a hundred salah times fifty rand, you know. So pay that. I've missed, missed fasting so many years, you know. So I'm giving 10,000 rand per, for every Ramadan I've missed, you know. My children must give that. This is nonsense. Other people can't, you can't do that. You had to do that when you were alive. I'm not saying you pray for your parents. I'm saying whatever prayers you make, the reward of that goes to your parents. You can't pray on behalf of them. But be that as may, Nabi Sallallahu said, Allah says, that man shall have nothing but what he strives for. And the Nabi Sallallahu said, the best food that you can eat, the best food that you can eat, is what food? Is the food from the money which you earn by your own sweat. The best food that you eat is the food that comes from the halal rizq that you sweat for, you buy the food and you eat it. And the Nabi Sallallahu says, similarly, your children is also what you earned on the dunya, it's part of your earnings, your halal earnings. So because your children is part of your halal earnings, you can benefit from those earnings even in the akhirah. Subhanallah. So next time when you do good, subhanallah, you should smile and say, Alhamdulillah, my parents are benefiting from this. Subhanallah. My parents are benefiting from this. And the other hadith, last hadith, seeing that you don't come on a Wednesday night. See, I'm not selfish. I'm not a selfish guy. I could see how uh, these people sit here on a Friday, you know, on a Wednesday night, you don't see them. Yeah, come on, lach, lach, lach. So one of the issues we discussed was dua that's mustajab. We know there are a number of occasions when you dua mustajab when you're Arafah, if you're a parent, and if you are oppressed, and if, you, if you're on travel, and so forth. But this one is, Nabi Sallallahu said, you know this, that if you make dua for your brother, or sister, in that person's absence, meaning the person is passed away, or the person is not here, 
the person is in Joburg or the person is not in the masjid, and you make dua for that person, what happens? What happens when you make dua for a person who is not present? What does the Nabi say? Nabi Sallallahu says, if you make dua for a person who is not present, let's assume mistakes, he's alive, he's somewhere, you say, Ya Allah, and you know maybe he's, he needs something, say, Ya Allah, you know that man needs a car, please give him a car. Oh, ya Allah, he hasn't got a job, please give him a job. Ya Allah, make him a millionaire, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, send him for hajj, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, give him a rizq. Ya Allah, give him health. Now, sometimes we do it, sometimes we don't. We think, why was I going to offer him? He must make his own dua. But the Nabi says, listen to what the Nabi says. He says, look at the beauty of Islam. Nabi Salaam says, if you make dua for your brothers not present, what happens? Allah deputizes an angel. Listen to this. Allah subhanahu deputizes an angel. Sends him as an agent. Allah's agent to you. To stand next to you when you make the dua. So you make use. Lift your hand and say, Ya Allah. My brother or my sister or my friend or Mr. So-and-so, either dead or alive, Ya Allah, give him whatever he needs. Give him health. The angel, what does the angel do? The angel says, Amin. The angel says, Amin. Then the angel says something else. The angel says, Oh Allah. Because Allah knows everything. The angel says, Oh Allah. Whatever he asks for that person, give it to him also. Whatever he asks for that person, give him also exactly the same that he's asking for. Subhanallah. So next time you're a bit lazy to make dua for somebody, think, ask for him for a million bucks, I'm also going to get a million. Look how beautiful Islam is. Look how, look how Islam encourages us to love those who are not present. And you know what? If it's your enemy, you'll get double. If you make dua for those that you don't like, Allah will say, look at this man, subhanAllah, look at him. He's only heard that I give him the same. Now even for his enemies, he's making dua. He wants so much, subhanAllah. So if you say, ya Allah, forgive him, what will happen? Allah will forgive you also. Everything that you ask for, so may Allah also give, inshallah, that we, we, um, we take example from the examples of Usama and Abu Lubaba. And we try and not justify what we do that is wrong. Because, you know, last week I spoke and I said, you know, there's a time when I dyed my hair black, remember? So I went home and I said to my wife, what is the khutbah about? She said, I said, you know, I spoke about the, the beauty of, uh, of old age and, you know, what Nabi Sallallahu said about shaba, about grayness and so forth and so on. And I say to the people, you know, I, I make toba, you know, that I used to die my hand. It's wrong for me to do it. I say, of course he did die for means. See, means is a bizarre. And I'm saying it again. I'm not going to go home and tell her, Mash, she's not here today, so it's fine. But it's important that we recognize what we did was not the correct thing to do. And that we tell others that this is what I did. Because I'm not going to tell you everything. <laughs> but this is part of cleansing. And it's part of guidance. You know, this is how you guide. I mean, I smoked. I used to smoke. And I said this a hundred times before. But I can stand in front of you today and say, what, many years ago I stopped. It was wrong. You can't justify it. How do you justify it? I'm addicted to it, not justification. Because it's bad for you. There's no justification. So even if you're a smoker, you should always never justify it. Say it's wrong. I'm, what I'm doing is wrong. Halas, end of story. 
Do not justify what you do is, is right. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide us inshallah. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.